Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You are listening to The Big Cruise Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Big Cruise Podcast and welcome to episode 29. My name is Baz and in today's show we've got so much going on. We've got the usual format with Chris joining us with uh, Maritime History and Cruise News. We've got Pete uh, joining us mid-show to uh, give uh, a couple of tips if you're considering a river cruise uh, for the first time. And then lastly in the show, we'll be joined by Matthew. Uh, Matthew's a, a blogger, a cruise blogger in the UK, uh, cruising with Matthew. And uh, he's going to be reviewing a recent cruise on board what was P&O Oceana. She, of course, left the fleet during this uh, COVID situation. Um, but he was on one of the last two cruises that she operated with P&O before being retired. And so he looked back on uh, one of his favorite cruises on what was also one of his favorite ships within the, the P&O fleet. Now, a few little changes to the podcast. As you know, we've had some show sponsors for some time, and uh, without them, it certainly wouldn't be possible to do this podcast. But certain industries are finding it a little tough right now and don't have the funds to uh, to make those donations. So we've, uh, um, I'm sure you've heard of things like Patreon, where you can make a donation or become a subscriber or member. Um, and we are following a similar uh, path, uh, but with a, a product called buy me a coffee. And what does that mean? Well, for the relatively small cost of a coffee, you can make a, a virtual donation uh, to help with the, the costs of uh, hosting the website and housing the audio on the, on the podcast directories, etc. Um, so if you are in a, the position where you, you can make a, a virtual donation, you will find a little link in the show notes. You'll also find a link on uh, the website. Um, or you can go to buymeacoffee.com and search for the Big Cruise podcast. And uh, like I say, for the cost of about $4, you can uh, make a small donation. Or if you love what you're listening to uh, on a weekly basis here at the podcast, you can put up an automated uh, subscription, um, which will come out monthly. And by doing so, you'll get access to some bonus content as well. Um, but 
I don't want to dwell on it too much. The podcast will always be free, but if you want to help out where you can, there is a certain way that you can do so, and it's buymeacoffee.com. But without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 29. And once again, it's that time of the show, we welcome our good friend, uh, Chris Frameback. Chris is always bringing great maritime history and cruise news. And once again, Chris, welcome to the show. Ahoy there, Barry. Okay, now... Um Obviously, there's been a lot of media over the last couple of weeks, but last, mm. the last week in particular has been quite vocal about the scrapping or recycling of, of cruise ships. And yep. we thought, rather than go too much into history, we'd probably set a few stories straight as part of the maritime history segment, because yep. this is not a new process. Cruise ships have been recycled and scrapped for many, many, many years. It's just a natural cycle of, of any kind of form of technology, I guess, for want yeah. of a better word. But I'll let you do all the explaining. Well, absolutely. I mean, not not just cruise ships, but as long as ships have existed, which is obviously for thousands of years, there's been a need to to break them up or to recycle them after they've finished their their usefulness. Um, In terms of um, passenger ships as we think of them today, I mean, the old ocean liners that came into service in the um, 19th century, they were definitely not designed to last forever. They had a um, some of them only had you know a decade's worth of service before they were superseded by by technological changes. So they they used to get broken up all the way back then, and and the same thing happens now. Now, of course, what is unusual now is seeing the footage that you've probably seen on YouTube or on um, television recently. News news mm-hmm. stations are definitely showing it quite a bit um, of um, the five big cruise ships being broken up in Turkey, and that from a modern perspective is quite unusual because we you know cruising has been in a, in boom years for so long that older cruise ships have just been having longer and longer lives they've been staying in service for longer um so yeah okay that's a little bit different it's a bit novel and, and and sad to see as you can imagine but you know if you look back to to the periods um such as uh, the great depression for example when many ships were surplus to requirements there were other situations um, where you would see multiple large ocean liners being scrapped at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. Similarly, in the 1960s, when jet aircraft um, eclipsed passenger ships as the primary way to get around the world, um, and container ships eclipsed ocean liners as a way to move freight, there were lots of surplus um, passenger ships that just ended up um, being laid up for long periods of time and then sent to the breakers' yards. Um, and so, yeah, in our recent memory, we haven't seen it in the in the cruising uh, experience as we know it now, from sort of like the nineteen eighties onwards, where it's just been growth after growth, growth year after growth year. We haven't really seen so many big ships all at once leave the fleet, um, but it isn't an unusual thing in in history because when things like this happen, um, you end up with surplus. Uh, ships because mm-hmm. of lower demand and the, the most natural thing to do with them um, if there is no future use for them is to have them recycled and you know you've seen the your listeners would have seen the pictures of these ships and they get they get run up on the on the beach um, it's a very dangerous uh, um, place to be working in some instances because there's like a lot of uh, a lot of machinery and um, and ships and metal and all that sort of stuff in in close proximity so the people who run these yards um, are very sort of experienced with breaking ships up. Um, and this time around, we've actually seen um, 
you know, more and more footage of these ships being broken up because uh, we're living in this technological age where people can take exactly. Instagram videos. Yeah, and that sort of thing. But, you know, the yard in Turkey is the one that's busy at the moment um, with, with the cruise ships. But previously, we've seen um, multiple ships scrapped in other scrapyards. There's, there's big scrapyards in India and in Pakistan and um, in Taiwan. There were scrapyards in the 1970s were very very busy breaking up old ocean liners and actually if you look back in history there were many scrapyards in near shipyards in scotland in the united kingdom so the ships used to be built in in scotland and on the clyde and then would maybe end their days on the clyde and um so it's not a not a new thing now obviously with recycling ships it, it allows them to to re you know reclaim the steel and the aluminium and the um, glass that's used inside the ship the you know machinery that has a future use can be can be re- reconditioned and um, put back into service. Um, the ship itself, there's lots of interior stuff. So there's like um, furniture and chairs and tables and beds and lots of thing that go with it. So um, that's some of it's um, some of it's put in landfill. Others is uh, is sent to to future uses like um, charities and that sort of thing. And some stuff actually ends up going um, on the market for collectors to take. Um, and if you look back in, again in history, the, the, the White Star Lines ship Olympic, which was the sister ship of the Titanic, mm-hmm. um, she was actually scrapped in the 1930s, very almost identical interior. And many of the interior pieces of the Olympics sort of first class areas were actually um, taken off, preserved, and then have been installed in a hotel called the White Swan Hotel in the United Kingdom. So you can actually go and have lunch in the in Olympic interior. Wow. So it gives a, a way for the interior spaces to live on, perhaps in some cases, not always. In fact, it's it's the it's the exception to the rule. Most of the time, it's it's broken up, but um, in some cases, you get to see that, which is quite quite nice for future generations. Um, and of, of of course, with all of these sorts of things, there are concerns, as you can imagine. It's uh, environmentally with with ships that have got um, um, you know diesel and oil and all sort of thing, and they're in the water still when they're bro- being broken up. So there is um, legitimate environmental concerns when it comes to the, the breaking up of, of ships. Um, but uh, the alternative, I suppose, to them being scrapped would, would be to, to have to find a, an alternate use for them. And there's so many ships that have been in service. So like all industries, there's, there's a push to, to make it um, cleaner and greener um, and, and allow that process to happen in a, in a more um, sustainable way. Yeah, I, I've read or heard somewhere that the, 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 Recycling uh, location in Turkey is actually one of the more environmentally conscious of the the others around the world, and that's one of the reasons why this particular yard has been chosen, uh, amongst other reasons, of course, as well. Um, but as you say, you know, ships naturally have a, a life cycle, mm. um, and they become ultimately too expensive to maintain and, and operate. And all these ships that are currently um, being recycled um, probably would have left the fleet in the next three to five years anyway. It's just that current events have brought those plans a little further mm. forward. And, in, you know, back to our comment about the the visibility of it all, like, I mean, uh, there's been other instances where very well-known ships, such as Canberra in the 1990s, the Norway, which was a very well-known and much-loved ship in the early 2000s, um, many of the, I mean, the old Pacific Sky, for example, ended up on the, on the, on the scrapyards. Um, and you would see maybe one or two photographs of them and perhaps, um, you know, very well-known people who document scrapping of ships like Peter Kanengo um, might have gone out and made like a, an official video of it and, and, and had it as part yeah, of a DVD. Yeah. But this time around at this, uh, the yard in, in Turkey, 
the the, the shipyard workers are taking um, v- video and posting it on Instagram. The there's footage from on board the the carnival ships, for example, as they're being um, run aground. So it's um, you know, it's very visual. It allows you to see it, but it also, you know, it's not from from what I can gather, it's being allowed to be shared, which is quite unusual. Um, and, and it gives everybody this opportunity to see this process that has kind of been something that people haven't really thought about up until now. So for many people, I suppose it's the first time they've seen it, and then it feels like some sort of, you know, this is happening for the first time. Well, well, it hasn't. It's just never been sort of publicly displayed like this before. Yeah, and I guess I mean we concentrate on crews, but there's also similar scenarios going on with with aircraft that are either parked long term mm. in storage out in in the desert or are recycled for parts for for other aircraft. Yeah. So um, I mean, just recently they've been re- they've been starting to recycle um, aircraft of the a- Airbus A380 um, uh, fleet, yep. and you know that is very telling of what's been happening because it, it's basically changed the entire aviation mindset. That I think twin jets they were already on the way um, to becoming the most dominant form of transport, but you know, you, you're not going to see those big quad jet aircraft um, in, in the resurgence at the, particularly in the beginning days um, as things start to improve. Yeah. And that's why we've seen airlines like Qantas retire their entire 747 fleet. Some of those aircraft like with the cruise ships, some of them will be saved. Some of them have been used for alternate uses, but the majority of them will end up being scrapped. Now let's move into um, cruise news. And um, the first one is um, regarding Carnival Australia. And uh, they've further extended their pause for Carnival Splendor. Yeah, so it's an extra month now. So originally it was going to be um, beginning of January 2021 for Splendor, which is the, the larger of the two that they, they base in Australia. The other one is Carnival Spirit. Um, but now she'll be um, not resuming any cruising until at least the 8th of February 2021. Um, and again, I don't think any Australians are very surprised um, potentially with this announcement because we still yet to know, uh, there's no clarity really around, unless you know something that I don't, around when the cruise pause might be lifted. So I guess um, it, it makes sense that they're doing that. Lots of speculation, but nobody uh, talking anything firm or concrete. Now, staying in, uh, staying in Australia and in more positive news, our first cruise line has actually recommenced operations out on the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, so this might be a little bit confusing given the, the comment we just said a few seconds <laughs> ago. So for any for anyone who doesn't understand or um, for any international listeners, the Australian cruise ban means that any foreign flagged cruise ships aren't allowed in Australian ports or Australian waters. So that's a very, very, very basic top line explanation. But yep. um, that that means that like the Australia Australia fleet, for example, which are registered in London, aren't in Australian waters at the moment. But Coral Expeditions uh, is a local... Um, brand that's that's operated um out of australia and because of the size of their ships and the um the, the way that they are set up they're able to recommence some sailing so they've got a 46 passengers on board um on this particular um set of cruises which is voyages to great barrier reef uh from cairns and their seven night voyages so they've just started doing those again um and it'll be great to hear the feedback if any of the listeners have done one of those voyages in the next few weeks um, it'd be great to hear how, how it is on board um, a cruise ship during the cruise shutdown in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to to get a review of that, if at all possible. Now, let's head over to the UK, um, where P&O UK have uh, got some good news this week. Yes, yeah, so some positive news for P&O. Unusual for them as well, though, because they've just taken delivery of their new flagship. Um, and usually these sorts of things are followed by the maiden voyage with lots of passengers on board, which, of course, we can't can't do at the moment. Um, but Iona is the name of the new ship. She's a 5,000 passenger, 180,000 ton 
um, ship of the same sort of design as the LNG powered ships in the Carnival Corporation fleet. So she's got that LNG power plant, which makes her more environmentally friendly um, and, um, you know, visually looks quite similar to some of the ships that are in um, Aida, Costa and, of course, Carnival's new Mardi Gras. But there are, of course, many differences on the interior and also on the top deck with different funnels and that sort of thing. Um, so 180,000 tons, a very big ship, um, 5,000, over 5,000 passengers when she's fully operational and all the restrictions have been eased. Uh, and she um, is now the flagship of P&O. So congratulations to them after uh, that building process. They've now got a new flagship. And of course, Britannia was the previous flagship. Mm-hmm. Now, a question without notice. I've just sure. This just popped into my head, so I apologize. No way. Some cruise lines keep the same flagship for, mm. for a long period. For example, Holland America always had the, the Amsterdam and Rotterdam as their flagships. Yep. Um, irrelevant of a new ship coming into the fleet. But other cruise lines, when the latest ship comes in, that becomes the... the yep. Is there a reason or a um, meaning behind it? You know, it's interesting because uh, it, it it really comes down, I think, to to what's going on with the cruise line at the time. Like, I mean, obviously, Holland America, for example, the flagship, it's a tradition. And they've, they, they had Amsterdam and Rotterdam as dual flagships, but usually it's the Rotterdam, the ship named Rotterdam mm-hmm. that's the flagship. So there's been many, many flagships. Rotterdam, the new flagship's going to be Rotterdam. So that's an, a longstanding tradition. Um, P&O, actually, interestingly enough, the Oriana, which was built in 1995, she took over the flagship status from Canberra when she okay. entered service. And she remained the flagship all the way through until um, Britannia took over. So she, in terms of size and scale, she was eclipsed by Azura and Ventura and Oce- Oceana and Aurora, but she maintained that flagship status. And Oriana is a name that means something to P&O because it was the flagship of um, the Orient Line when the two companies eventually sort of yeah, yeah. tied up and merged up. So, um, you know, other lines like, uh, say, for example, Cunard, it uh, had QE2 as the flagship until 2004 when she handed over to Queen Mary II. And I think a lot of that came down to the fact that QE2 for the majority of the time was the biggest ship in the fleet, but she was also the well, most well-known ship in the fleet. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you look at Cunard's history back in the day, like when, you know, Mauritania was flagship and then when um, uh, Berengaria came into the fleet, Aquitania came into the fleet, she became flagship, Berengaria became flagship, Queen Mary became flagship. So they changed it quite a lot. So yeah, it's probably more usual than not that the ships, that the flagships change. And sometimes if it stays with one particular ship, it's because that ship means something really special, like Rotterdam means something or, or Oriana meant something or Kiwi 2 meant something. Okay, makes sense. Now, we'll stay in the UK because uh, we did touch on this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but Saga, have um, their, their newest shipmate, mm. has uh, joined her sister. That's right. Spirit of Adventure has now joined the Spirit of Discovery in Tilbury. Um, Spirit of Adventure is almost visually a, a kind of clone of Discovery. They're the same design, but interior-wise, they've got you know the differences that make them unique ships. Um, 999 passengers, which is uh, just shy of 1,000 there. And what's really interesting is when... Um, adventure arrived in spirit of adventure arrived into tilbury with the spirit of discovery you've got basically the uk's um some of the uk's newest ships but just across on the other side of the um docking area there there was the laid up astoria which is a former cmb fleet ship and she's one of the i think perhaps even the oldest uh one of the or at least one of the oldest ships in that was in service before the cruise pause because she actually used to be um, a, an ocean liner called Stockholm and was the same ship that was involved in the collision with Andrea Doria 
and she was rebuilt as a cruise ship and until 2020 she remained in service as the Astoria so it was just kind of a um a yeah. interesting little v- visual there of these two brand new ships and then right across from them this historic ship that many people who who love Astoria are hoping she'll find a new home in the in the new um in the new world <laughs> yeah fingers crossed um, now we've had Captain Kate on on the podcast previously, and uh, she's a very very popular character. But there was a particular uh, ceremony um, out in the uh, the Bahamas or the Caribbean uh, Sea um, mm. where they all of the celebrity fleet mates welcomed Celebrity Apex. Yeah, really nice. Uh, Apex has been accepted into the Celebrity fleet. She'd been built at Le Chantier de l'Antique in Saint Nazaire in France, which is a very famous French shipyard. Um, and you know, she did the transatlantic delivery voyage and then went across to lay up, um, in the Caribbean with the rest of the, um, celebrity fleet. And so you've now got this, uh, this, this new latest greatest ship alongside celebrity edge, which is a very similar design to, to apex. And then you've got the, um, you know, Equinox and her, her fleet mates and some of the older celebrity ships all there together. So. Um, visually it must be very nice but again like you know in that area where the ships have been laid up they've been in these sort of clusters and they do noon whistle blows together and the crew cheer and shout at each other to sort of keep morale up so this would have been a, yep. quite a quite a spectacular thing for the crew to have witnessed um, their newest fleet mate joining joining in with that yeah there was an incredible video of um, all the ships pirouetting um, mm. kind of around her it's uh, yeah. quite a, quite impressive there's a little little dance uh, they the way they can maneuver these ships as well with the with the use of either the stern and bow thrusters or the azipods is just remarkable. They can do these three, yep. 360 sort of pirouettes without actually moving away from their current position, which is quite yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Now, back to Australia briefly. Um, mm. We knew that Pacific Aurea was going to leave the fleet, but there's been a few changes. Yeah, so she's leaving early, just like Pacific Dawn. Um, look, I mean, I guess originally Pacific Aurea was scheduled to, to withdraw from Australian service in April of next year um and of course um pacific adventure which was the golden princess she was expected to be um, in fact in an alternate universe barry i would be on board now on her maiden voyage um, <laughs> doing my doing my lectures on that that's, that's what i had booked originally <laughs> and, um uh to do that so she's she was a big um you know, a hundred thousand ton ship that was replacing some of the smaller ships in the fleet. And Aria yep. was going to stay with P and O until April. And then she was going to going to move on and actually go across to CMV to join Dawn at CMV. Now we know CMV has collapsed, um, stopped services. Um, Aria, then the question came, what's going to happen to her, but she has actually left the fleet and she has um, reportedly got a new owner. So um, will we expect to see her, remain in service as a ship not not head off to those scrapyards that we were talking about earlier yeah there was a little rumor that she was on her way to greece but uh, we'll mm. see if that, that uh, pans out greece, um, you know, yeah it's Oceana. all very secretive <laughs> yeah it's interesting you know like um you can you can kind of try and guess by watching voyage tracker and see what their destinations are but um for the most part it's been quite quiet so um i suppose in some respects that that does feed the rumor mill which isn't necessarily very helpful but um but we'll see we'll wait and see time will tell now uh, news that just landed this morning or uh, overnight um hertigruten which we normally talk about when we're talking about the the norwegian coast but they've had an announcement regarding their antarctica season which i guess wasn't to be uh, was, was to be expected yeah so i mean those the expedition ships that they that they operate there hertigruten and of course they're they're ships that are um you know well known for 
sailing in the northern hemisphere with the ice icebreaker style hulls, they can operate down in Antarctica as well. So they had planned a, a 2020-21 season down to Antarctica, but they won't be doing that anymore. Um, and this is, of course, due to the you know ongoing problems that I don't think anybody needs to have that explained to them <laughs> yeah, um, at this yep. stage. But that means that voyages from October 2023 to March 2021 will be um, will be cancelled. Okay. Now, as always, Chris, you've always got a video either just out or just about to uh, uh, pop out onto the horizon. What's what's this week's topic? This week's uh, like a bit of a look back at everything that's, well, not everything, but the, the main key events that have happened over the last, we just sort of passed the six-month mark on the um, mm-hmm. uh, on the cruise pause coming into effect. And so with, you know, recent media interest in cruise ships, also there's been some, some stuff on TV that's got a lot of people interested. Um, and of course, all of the, the chatter around what's happening with the scrapping of the ships, I thought it was a good idea to look at how did it get to this point? Like, it's not something that's just happened, you know, they the direct, the company directors and stuff haven't just woken up one day and decided to send off their ships to the scrapyard. There's a lot of stuff that's happened in terms of what's been going on with the cruise pause, the, the impact it's had on companies, the restrictions that are in place, things like the Australian and New Zealand cruise ship bans and that sort of thing. So um, just put that in sort of a chronological order month by month so that people can get sort of their bearings as to what's going on um, in the world of passenger ships. Excellent. Well, I'll be, well, the, the link to your YouTube channel is always in the show notes, but I'll also share the, the link to the video on our social pages as well. Thank Chris, um, it is always a pleasure. But before I let you go, we've got a, a question that has come in, and I'm sure you do know the answer, but we just simply don't have time for it um, today. Sure. They were asking about a sinking of a ship, which I think was by the name of Austral in mm-hmm. Sydney Harbour, mm-hmm. and they wondered if you could shed some light on that uh, in the next episode. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it was one of the greatest engineering feats of the time undertaken in Sydney Harbour and uh, really was something that caused a great deal of attention uh, with what happened to the Austral. So I would be very happy to share that story next week. We look forward to it. And uh, Chris, it's always a pleasure. We look forward to speaking to you next week. Thanks so much, Barry. And once again, we welcome back our good friend to the show, Pete from Clear. Hey, Pete. G'day, Bez. It's uh, podcast time again, and it's time for another five uh, fast facts. This time you're talking uh, about ocean, moving from ocean cruise to river. So uh, let's jump straight in. It's actually a, a quite a common occurrence at the moment. Uh, a lot of ocean cruisers love cruising, and just because they're considering river cruise doesn't mean they're not going to ocean cruise again. So it's not like one or the other. But you know, the, the river cruise does perk the interest, so they sort of ask, you know, what's the difference? So my first tip for someone who's considering a river cruise, uh, just be prepared that there are no sea days. So one of the most, um, or river days, I should say, um, because one of the most favorite thing on board an ocean cruise is a day at sea, just uh, relaxing. So on a river cruise, uh, you're going to be in a port, uh, not particularly all day long. Um, You might be just a half day or even two ports in the one day. Um, I personally have done a river, I did a great, uh, I'll do a shout out, uh, Uniworld uh, River Cruise a couple of years ago. Now, I was fortunate to have explored those cities uh, quite regularly. So I actually stayed on board the, the river vessel. Uh, oh, yep. And I actually loved it. I was just on top deck reading a book and uh, just chilling out. Um, so you can you can still have your river days if you want. But uh, it just means um, prior to maybe plan your days, what you're going to do in each port. Because the th- great thing about river cruising is because the excursions are offering included, you actually know what you're 
your options are through the day. It's actually listed in the brochure or on the website. Good advice. Uh, number four? Number four, research destinations. And I say that not from a logistical point of view, but I find river cruising quite a learned experience. You have many opportunities to really immerse yourself in the history and the culture, the arts, the you know, the life of these destinations you're visiting. And I just find just a little bit of research. If you don't read books, that's fine. Go on YouTube or watch a movie that's made in the area. It just makes the experiences that you do have on shore, which you will have on shore, uh, just a bit uh, more meaningful for to you. So it is a very destination-orientated experience. And just a little bit of research or insight uh, will just make it a little bit more fun. Couldn't agree more. Um, uh, number three. Well, for river cruising, you, you, you know, there's a number of vessels, of, of course, uh, across the waterways uh, along the world, but uh, you're generally dealing with about 150 to 200, 220 people. So you've got a, you've got a smaller uh, number of people who you're mixing with. But uh, what we find, even statistically, is it's a greater international mix. So you will have um, conversations with your French, your German, your Italians, your English, your US, your Australians, your Kiwis, uh, from all sorts of matter. Look, it for me, I, I love it. It's part of the experience. Uh, there are some customers who may feel uh, not as comfortable with that because they can't relate. So it's just something to be aware of. But I personally think it's one of the most fun things to uh, come across on a river cruise. Oh, yeah. I love being with so many different nationalities. I'd, I'd, I'd struggle when it's uh, only one nationality on board, to be honest. So it's uh, always good to, to make new friends all over the world. Uh, number two. So something that's changed in river cruising over the last five to 10 years, but particularly the five, is um, the inclusiveness of the cruise. So uh, river cruising has a, a great reputation and historically it has been the case where everything's inclusive, drinks, excursions, everything. Uh, but the cruise lines uh, have realised that not everyone wants to pay for everything and only use certain aspects, particularly if they don't, they're not a non-drinker. They just like teas and coffees and, and beverages. Why should they be paying for uh, alcohol beverages when they don't have it? Or excursions, a lot of them are self-explorative, so why am I paying for excursions prepaid into it? So a lot of the cruise lines now have mixed and matched uh, various components of their services and features, so you have more options now to either uh, find a cruise that has a drink package or it's uh, inclusive in the meals or it's inclusive 24 hours. Same with excursions. We have uh, a lot more excursions available, be it the mainstream ones that are part of the cruise um, or select uh, elite type excursions where it, you might need a helicopter or something special happening that's a little bit extra cost um, and some I think uh, Emerald Waterways is one where, hey, go self-explore. If you do want to have an excursion, uh, we have one available for a certain price. So that sort of helps uh, self-explorative type of um, explorers, I suppose. Oh, and number one. Prepare for your evenings because um, you will generally be on board. Now, this, you know, this is not generic all the way through. There are some ports where you will be overnight, and they're great because you guys should get out and explore through the evening or, or do a certain tour with um, some music and uh, beautiful cuisine. Uh, but generally, on, uh, for many rivers around the world, you'll be on board. And, of course, with a much smaller 
um, vessel compared to an ocean cruise line. You don't have the casinos. You don't have big Broadway shows. You don't have all these extra options. So um, just if you're one of those people who need that excitement, um, then you really need to consider your itinerary and the, the cruise product. But I personally find from river cruising that you are actually so knackered from exploring all day long. So the best bit is unwinding uh, with a drink and some music. I mean, they still have they have their activities. They have um, learned sort of destination type lectures, or they, a lot of them have local entertainment coming on board. Um, every, and because it's a small group, everyone sort of relaxes and enjoys the social atmosphere before uh, between each other. So the evenings are actually great. But I just want people to know if you know you're going to be on board, yep. and you don't have as much choice, but. Um, you find that you're too, too. I find some people try and do too much. They say, "Oh, river cruising so relaxing." Well, not if you don't want it to. But you can actually make it quite active. So it's really up to you of how you design your own holiday. Good advice all round. Couldn't uh, couldn't agree more with every single one of those points, Pete. It is always a pleasure to have you on the show, and we look forward to having you back next week. My pleasure. Thanks, Baz. And our next guest on today's podcast is a cruiser from a very young age. In fact, he started cruising at the age of six and has now become his passion, his other job, for one for a better word. Matt, or Matthew, welcome to the podcast. It's our pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much, Barry. It's lovely to be here. I've really, really been looking forward to doing this. Excellent. Now, as I mentioned, you've been cruising since a very young age. Do you remember that first cruise? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it was on board P&O Oriana, um, and she was the current flagship of the fleet. And I remember being absolutely blown away by what I thought was the sheer size of that ship. She was only about, I mean, in today's standards, 70,000 tons is, you know, probably considered a medium to small ship, especially amongst the larger fleets in like um, Royal Caribbean. But for someone who was six years old, and I remember in the terminal I think it was looking up and probably just seeing um, all you could see at that level was Oriana on the side of the bow and I knew that was going to be an absolutely incredible experience and me and my family absolutely loved it yeah it was was an incredible cruise incredible and then uh, fast forward you uh, ended up on the then biggest PLO ship of the fleet of course Britannia Yes, um, we had a bit of a gap uh, between 2011 and um, 2018 due to the joys of A-levels, GCSEs and university and whatnot. Um, but in 2018, yeah, we went on P&O Britannia because um, of a deal. I think it was like three people in the cabin kind of thing. So me and my mum yep. and my sister went um, and it turned out to be a, a Strictly cruise as well, which we weren't aware of. And to be honest, we felt like complete new cruises again because everything had changed. I mean, even the livery of P&O had changed. I didn't even recognise them because obviously they had the new Union flag bow and the blue funnels yep. and all that lot. And yeah, Britannia, driving towards the terminal, I had exactly the same thing um, as I did with Oriana. So I remember going into Ocean Terminal and you looked up and it just, the, the um, aft of Britannia was just looming above everything and I was blown away (laughs) that the thing could even float Um, and yeah it was just she was an absolutely incredible ship and I know some people she does seem to be a bit of Marmite um, amongst the P&O fans because she is quite different in terms of style from especially like if you compared Oriana to Britannia very different ship but I absolutely loved her and I think she had everything that you could want the only thing I did miss was the promenade deck but that's the same in any royal class ship as far as I'm aware. 
Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Now, today we want to talk about one of your favourite ships in the, the P&O UK fleet, a, a ship that has just been announced that it is departing, or in fact already departed, it's now uh, in Greece somewhere. Um, yes. Which ship are we going to be talking about? Uh, so I'm going, to be t- I'm going to be talking about P&O Oceana, who is currently, I think she's been renamed as Queen of the Oceans, and she's, I think, uh, been renamed by uh, Sea Jets, who are going to begin cruise operations soon, apparently. Yeah, that's exactly what I read as well. Now, um, give us a bit of a background. What made you choose this cruise that we're going to talk about um, for the for the holiday? And um, who who was traveling with you? Yeah, sure. So actually, um, this cruise is actually didn't actually exist until probably about six or eight months before it actually sailed, because Oceana was meant to be doing a winter Dubai season, but um, I think oh, it was about right, August yeah, right. in 2019. She had to be repositioned back to the UK. Well, her winter season was cancelled in Dubai because of the um, increased tensions. I believe there was a a British flag tanker which was boarded. So it was deemed appropriate that any British flag ships uh, should actually try and stay away from that area, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. And obviously, P&O having a giant Union flag across the bow probably (laughs) isn't, you know, the wisest uh, thing. Yeah, probably doesn't really help. Um, So, yeah, so... In August, uh, P&O released a whole new set of itineraries and uh, me and my friend, uh, Zoe actually, she uh, went with me as well as another friend, Georgia, on P&O Aurora to celebrate our graduation. It's So she'd been really wanting to try another cruise and these the prices on board these um, cruises, because obviously it was so last minute that they were probably about half what you would expect of a oh, wow. 14-night cruise. And naturally, because we were, you know, I was trying to keep it as relatively cheap because we weren't sure what the weather was going to be like because it was going to be February. Um, we got, I think it was the lowest grade inside cabin and um, we booked to go to the Mediterranean, not the Mediterranean, we booked to go to the Canary Islands um, because we thought we might get a bit of sun there. And so I asked Zoe just completely on the off chance, I was expecting her to say no. And um, she was like, yeah, sure. So uh, the next few days later, we booked it. And um, it didn't really seem real until um, I think it was the 23rd of February, actually, uh, we got on. (laughs) And it felt very weird because I've never actually cruised in the winter months. So going to Boots and buying sun cream and getting shorts out whilst (laughs) all the storms that we were experiencing felt very weird indeed. (laughs) <laughs> now um, obviously you're in the uk i'm here down here in australia um for our australian and kiwi guests or listeners they probably have no idea where the canary islands are so just to give them a bit of a background they're uh, spanish islands off the coast of africa from memory about 100 or so miles off the coast and there's a group of about five or six of them and i guess four of them are probably the key ones that people will hear about and you'll be talking about those a, a little later on now um the ships obviously depart from Southampton. You're based up in the north of England. Um, how do you get to Southampton? Do you take train? Do you take the, the, the coach services that operate? Or were you parking in Southampton itself? Yeah, well, normally um, we would always drive down straight from Yorkshire. But essentially, because my friend lives uh, around the Midlands, I actually got the train um, from um, a, cent- a central York station, essentially, and then went down to Nottinghamshire. Now, um, this was a bit of an issue in itself and probably in hindsight I'd recommend getting a coach or a car directly from where you're living because I had to drank a 
probably about a 25 kilogram plus suitcase halfway across York. And <laughs> I think one of the wheels ended up breaking about two minutes into the trip. So I ended up sanding said wheel all the way off. So I did feel sorry for anyone who had to carry the suitcase on board and off um, Oceana. But I did make it. And then we traveled down conventionally by car from Nottinghamshire all the way down to Southampton. And we stayed over the night before. Um, oh, yeah. because that's just something that me and my family have always done. It wasn't a fancy hotel. It was probably like a, um, you know, probably a budget hotel that did yep. a cheap breakfast uh, the day after. And it's just because we always do this because there's always cases where you have really bad traffic or, you know, you, you might have an unexpected breakdown and yep. it just takes away that stress. And also I'm one of those people who likes to be at the terminal as soon as humanly possible <laughs> because um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm too excited. But we always, we learned the benefit of driving down the night before, um, the year before, because around Southampton, they were doing a major motorway, basically reworking. And I think our arrival in Southampton was delayed by about two and a half hours um, because oh, wow. of that. So if you were driving down and you had an embarkation time of say 12 and you were expecting to get there at 10, it would, you wouldn't be, at risk of leaving the ship but it still wouldn't be good and i do think yeah. actually some people on a zero were actually late but they held the ship because they knew it was going to be um an issue um because they were they were made aware of it by the highway agency but yeah it was something that a lot of people got very flustered and stressed about but we were completely fine because we got to um stay over the <laughs> night before which is quite nice Fabulous. So you went across the terminal pretty early. Um, yes. How's the process? I've never embarked a ship in Southampton. Is it a pretty speedy process? How long did it take um, roughly from curbside to walking up the gangway? Well, I would say, I have to admit, I'm one of those people who, it's, I mean, given what's going on with the pandemic, this probably wouldn't be allowed now. But um, they gave us an allocated boarding time. I think it was one thirty, and we arrived at about half 11 because um, <laughs> I always was, because they'd, originally rolled out a online check-in service and so we did all our passport control and all that thing all, and all that lot basically before we arrived at the terminal there was a separate queue really and basically all we did was we took our photos we got our cruise card and then we were told to wait and then they give a set of letters out so it was like red a red b or things like that and we mm -hmm. probably sat in the terminal for oh 10 minutes we barely got ourselves to catch our breath from unloading all the bags and then they called us and then we were whisked out to security and on board i think we we're probably on board for 12 o'clock which is the quickest i've ever been um oh, wow. on board so from leaving the um car at half 11 we were eating in the buffet just after 12 it was very quick very good going indeed yeah yeah now um you'd cruised on piano a lot before but uh yes what was the feeling walking up the gangway was it like you were coming back home were you giddy with excitement uh, what were those thoughts think, as you entered the i think it's a bit of everything really it felt very surreal and i always have this because i'm one of those people who as soon as i booked and this can be you know between a year or quite a um, short time as it was for oceana and I will literally look at every video known to man on YouTube, which really has inspired my YouTube channel because there, I know there are people like me who don't do like that. I think yep. um, for Britannia, for instance, I watched every single video that basically had ever been made since she was named 2015 because that's just what I like to do for research. And it's kind of quite nice when you come on board because you recognize bits, but it doesn't feel real. And it does feel, I guess, like you said, like you're coming back home because although they are different ships, all the P&O ships, probably with the exception of Britannia potentially, all have a very similar feel. Um, yeah. And so and it's just you know that you're going to have an amazing holiday. And I've been on, I've been lucky enough in the past few years to be on 
this would be my third or fourth cruise now but that feeling never goes away and I don't think it ever does you're always excited um, because you know it's going to be a brilliant time yeah no exactly now every cruise line does muster drill a little bit differently it's one of those things that just has to happen before the ship can depart how is it handled on P&O do you physically have to go to the where the lifeboat is located and drag along your uh, life jacket etc or is it a bit more civilized um, I think it's it's changed a lot since um, we started to go on them, really, because um, the year before, in 2019, we had to bring our life jackets, put them on, things like that. But And I expect this will be the case in the future as well. Um, they actually say, leave your life jackets in the cabin and just come along with yourself. We'll scan your cruise card. You're in one of the large venues that so we were in, essentially the nightclub, and I put that term mm-hmm. loosely, nightclub, um, <laughs> in the... And we basically had a muster, the, sorry, we basically had the staff uh, who were in their life jackets and they demonstrated it, how it would all work. And it was all done really quickly. And I think this was a lot better. I do sometimes think it would be wise to maybe have life jackets, but at the same time, you, you see what they look like and you can always try one on, which I think me and Zoe did when we got back to the cabin. And it just helps get people through a lot quicker, because especially um, if there's an older population on board, um, then it's not always a good thing to have things like trailing, um, you know, yep. the straps sometimes, and it can also really make everything very cramped and quite warm. So I think that was a good move by P&O, and it did make everything quite easy. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens, as you say, post-COVID. I've seen some examples of what other cruise lines are doing where they're spreading out the, the mustard drill across the whole day, so there's not that whole congregation of people. So uh, yeah. I think it's going to become a much more pleasant experience moving forward, for sure. Yeah, I, I think I think I read somewhere that they might have, say, on the apps and something, they'll have a, a video demonstration and that'll log... Um, and if I presume you actually watched it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I presume your phone's going to be linked to your cabin so they'll know you've watched it um or things like that but i think like i said big gatherings of people at least in the immediate future when cruising finally restarts i don't think that will happen but like you said i think spreading it out is probably a lot nicer because eventually you have all these people going up and down the um, stairs and trying to get into the lifts um as much as i love cruising that is probably the only bit where i do sometimes think this could probably be organized a bit better but it has to be done like you said it is the law and um there are reasons why we do it yeah, exactly. Now you mentioned you went straight up to the uh, to the buffet and got a bite to eat. Before we yeah. sort of about talk about dining, let's have a a little look at the the accommodation that you had um, yeah, on sure. this particular cruise. Um, talk about uh, obviously the the configuration, the space, the wardrobe space, and my all, always important question is: Was there a, a glass shower screen, or was it one of those horrendous curtains? <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, there was a, a horrendous shower at Curtin, which probably was one of the downsides of the cabin. And I'll be honest, the cabin, I wasn't really expecting much, because like I mentioned, um, it was a PF grade, which was basically, I think when the travel agent I was booking with said, what cabin would you like? I was like, I would like the cheapest one possible, please. Um, so um, we got one pretty on F deck, which was um, as low as you can go, essentially, and mm-hmm. right at the front of the ship in the bow. and we kind of learned the hard way about why it was that cheap um, when we encountered some rough weather later on. But um, <laughs> it was a, to be fair, they did really well. There was a lot of mirrors in the cabin. So you had one right um, where the beds were and one along essentially what was the dresser, you know, the uh, tea yep. and coffee making facilities, which we have. 
Um, and actually, it was it was really well spaced, and there was lots of cabin space as well. But I'm not sure if my perceptions warped because I'm used to having three people in a cabin because I always travelled with either my family <laughs> and we we're a party of three, or when I went on um, Aurora, that was with Zoe, me, as well as my friend Georgia. So um, it does make it a lot easier having two people in a conventional cabin, yeah. which, which they're always designed for. But we never had any issue with space. Um, and it was really nicely well furnished as well. And we never had any issues. Um, and to be fair, I I understand why people like balcony cabins and um, outdoor, just your window cabins as well, or sea view, I can imagine is probably more appropriate. I think I'd much rather spend a lot cheaper on the cabin because I was only in there really to get changed and to sleep. And you've got, you know, all the deck space around you, which is really easy. And I think we were only a deck or two up from the promenade deck. So if you really wanted to rush out and see the views of outside, you could do that quite easily. But I understand why some people want a more yeah. um, elaborate cabin, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I always travel. Well, not always travel, but often travel as a family with my young kids. I've got three young children and um, I quite like an inside cabin because they've got no idea what time of the day it is and they tend to have a much longer lie-in. So it always <laughs> goes down well with the yeah. parents. <laughs> I think Zoe uh, experienced that as well. She was always uh, going for a nap because obviously you don't know. It could be, you know, midday. It could be in the middle of the night. You <laughs> wouldn't know. But I think she ended up having um, some, because we were always worried about seasickness, especially, especially with it being winter. Um, and I suggested taking some seasickness tablets, but I think she ended up taking them for the whole cruise and we didn't realise till the end that they were drowsy. So no wonder she was feeling yeah. sleepy. <laughs> but yeah, you do definitely get a good night's sleep in the interiors. <laughs> now let's have a little to think about the, the dining starting off with of course the, the buffet then the main dining room and any speciality restaurants that you went to i did the cruise on aurora a couple of years ago and i have to remember the one thing i distinctly remember about it apart from the pink bathrooms and the cabins was it had the best curry at sea oh that's a good quote i mean see that would have been a presumed sin do wouldn't it um the, their speciality was that in the main dining room uh, even in the main dining room, they had a daily curry, and that was extremely good. Mm, the food, I mean, actually, I'm very much, as you can probably tell, maybe coming from Yorkshire, I'm not sure, but I try to, uh, if I spent a particular amount of money for a cruise, I tend to go for the main dining room, and I don't really go for the speciality restaurants. Um, so mm -hmm. it was always the main dining room in the evening, and we'd always go for the buffet for uh, dinner, or sorry, for breakfast or for lunch. And that being said, uh, halfway through our cruise, we essentially had some table, com oh, it, I say table companions loosely because um, we were in tables of two and it just so happens that we were essentially between two other tables for two and they're that close together, <laughs> we might as well, we might as well have just been uh, a table, table of six, six really. <laughs> and um, they were some fantastic, they honestly made the evenings and we, we were always pretty much the last people to leave the dining room and we knew we were always running to get to the last bit of entertainment because we wouldn't stop talking and that was um, Steve and Diane and Max and John and we never stopped laughing throughout it but uh, Steve and Diane actually highlighted that Oceana has uh, what well had at the very top of the atrium a um, extra charge venue called uh, Cafe Jardin but we thought it was extra charge oh. venue throughout the entire day, but that was only in the evening. So you could go for breakfast or for lunch. And it essentially was like a Italian themed restaurant. And essentially oh, wow. you had like a salad bar, dessert bar kind of thing. And then they would also give you um, a menu where you could order things like your pizzas and a variety of things like that. And that was all included within the fair. So it was only dinner that was um, extra, extra cost. And that was quite a, 
hiding in plain sight venue and we actually probably halfway through the cruise started having that more often at lunch because it was just a bit of a change of scenery because I do love the buffet but um, it was really nice and I'm a massive fan of Italian foods and especially Italian desserts. I dread to think how many miniature tomasu pots I ate but there was a lot <laughs> a lot were consumed um, but that was fantastic and uh, that's probably the only speciality I, uh, venue that I went for because um, that's just what I preferred. But Oceana yeah. did also have the beach house, which was a um, form, essentially a portion of the main, of, excuse me, it was a portion of the buffet, which uh, is converted. And it tends to be what I'd probably put as more your American style food. Um, so it would have things like uh, kebabs or it would have fried chicken and things like that. And that was always quite okay. popular. And you would also have, to my knowledge, a... I can't actually, I, to be honest, I can't actually remember some of the other speciality venues because I just didn't um, really look at them, to be honest. That's okay. But one thing yeah. that I really loved about Oceana was the fact, and this is quite quirky, um, you probably know it, know it on the other Sunclass ships, but the buffet is situated right at the front of the ship at the top. So that's you right. get these beautiful views over the bow of the ship. So that's really quite jarring because whenever I've been on a cruise, it's always been at the back. Um, yep. And you always have some form of, uh, P&O always have it as a crow's nest, which is essentially like this big observation bar right at the front of the ship. So that was quite a weird um, difference between any of the other ships I'd been on, which made Oceana quite different. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably due to her heritage being originally a princess ship before she moved over to P&O. So I imagine that's, that's probably right, a bit yeah. of her... Um, Old heritage, probably, because I imagine if she was purpose-built for P&O, they probably would have rejigged it a bit, but I really enjoyed that. Yeah. You got some beautiful views when you were having your God knows how many calories worth of uh, cooked breakfast in the morning, <laughs> um, watching the sea go by. So that was really good. The only issue was naturally that if it was rough weather, which we had on the way back, which I'll probably talk about in a lot more detail later on, it made things not very ideal for those people who weren't a fan of rough weather because it was very much sea horizon sea horizon as we bounced yeah, back to Southampton yeah. but I enjoyed it and the beautiful bay of Biscay sounds uh, sounds interesting <laughs> indeed yes now, now um even before COVID, I say this every time we do a cruise review, you know, hand sanitizing stations are everywhere. Hand washing is always enforced. Yep. And from my memory of, of Aurora, um, P&O were incredibly good. There was always people at the gangway trying to encourage you and you know, people as you entered the restaurants. Um, I, I am remembering that correctly, aren't I? Yes, you are. Um, the I've always said, and I've, I've, it's funny, I'm doing, I think, a, a YouTube video now talking about MSC's uh, return to cruising in Europe as well. And basically, mm. I think I always want to stress that this isn't a new thing. The fact that we're talking about enhanced sanitation and all those buzzwords, that's something that cruising has done for years. I mean, I remember that happening in 2006, and the worst thing that we had to deal with then was norovirus. And yes, mm. I think cruising has definitely been, I think vilified is probably the correct word, because unfortunately, we were kind of the first people to get hit by it, because, you know, going to so many different countries naturally, and because you're yep. in you're in a space with a lot more people for a, such an extended period of time that you got to see the effects of it. Whereas people who are on planes, you're only on there for max 24 hours if you're doing something like going to Australia and that's yeah. it. And people go about their own way, but you're on this for weeks. So people just have to, you see the effects of it. And I think cruising 
has always been a massive purveyor of cleaning. Like whenever I was walking around, they were always cleaning something. Um, I'm surprised yeah. they didn't run out of stuff to clean. They were always cleaning the banisters, the like side panels. They were cleaning floors. And that was just standard. And whenever you went into the restaurants, um, there was always the maitre d' or the head waiters armed with hand gel. So even if you really wanted to avoid it, you couldn't. And in the buffet, <laughs> there's always hand washing stations. And I recall, especially in Britannia, and I think all the other cruise, uh, cruise ships, actually, there were always people essentially at the buffet waiting to get people washing their hands. And they essentially stopped anyone who tried to avoid it. I don't know why you yep. would. And things such as in the toilets as well, they'd always say that you should have a they always had a disposable hand uh, towel dispenser next to the door and they said that you should open use one of them and open the handle with that disposable towel and then put it in the bin after so there's always yep. been these uh, things in play and obviously cleanliness and cleaning i think it's always been high priority so i do think that's been massively misportrayed in the media at the moment yeah, no, exactly. Now, um, let's get back into the, the ship and the, your favourite areas and things. But um, obviously, you've got a couple of sea days heading from Southampton down to your ports. And we will get to the ports in just a second. But um, how was the, the, the flow of passengers on this particular ship? Could you find a space in the lounge? Could you find a, a deck chair by the pool if you, if you wanted one? Yeah, to be fair, Oceana was very good at holding people, like absorbing people in, really, which sounds a bit like a horror film. But um, Oceana... <laughs> I was kind of concerned because she's always been, you know, she was a sun-class ship and still is. Um, and I was kind of worried that her interiors might not be able to cope in terms of bad sea days because obviously she's designed to be in the Mediterranean where it's always sunny. and Well, most of the time it's always sunny. But she coped really well. The distinct feel- feeling that I got compared to other P&O ships was that her venues were very much open plan. So it seemed that one venue almost flowed into the other. You always had, like, um, you... You didn't really have venues partitioned off by uh, rooms or walls, per se, with the exception of things like Yacht and Compass, which was the more like British pub, inverted commas, style. So it was really nice. Um, And I have to admit, the deck space on board was incredible. It's probably the most ample amount of deck space I've seen on any cruise ship. Um, Because I think, like I said, she's a sun-class ship, so she was designed for that. So you had huge amounts of deck space, even on the hottest days. And we were lucky enough to have about 25 degrees when we were around the Canaries. And there was, yes, there was always, you know, you had to walk around for a little bit, but um, if you wanted to be picky, but especially around the bow of the ship, um, there was tons of deck space, which I really liked because being able to sunbathe basically on the bow of the ship at the top above the bridge was quite a unique feeling but I really yeah. enjoyed that and the pools were always well there was always enough uh, hot tubs and pools as well and for some reason it seemed that the pools weren't well utilized but um me and Zoe basically always had a pool to ourselves um which was quite <laughs> nice so yeah it was a brilliant ship for that and we never had to struggle to walk around or anything like that Okay. And how about the uh, the entertainment on board? Lots of live music and different activities, obviously, from, from morning through to uh, late in the evening? Yes. Um, so there was always, sea days tended to be the likes of, you'd always have like um, talks going on, or you'd have um, art, exhi- art exhibitions, line dancing, a lot of dance classes. Um, the atrium was really filled with jewellery talks and things like that. You would also have, which was our personal highlight, a choir. And this is something that I've done every single cruise that I've been on, um, even probably when I started. And essentially, you have a member of the entertainment team uh, teaching you a few songs. It's nothing complex. It's, you know, it's yeah. not um, 
and you might do a bit of a harmony and things like that, but nothing major. And then at the end of the cruise, you do a performance in one of the big venues and all your, you know, your passenger mate, all your passengers basically come on down and have a look. And it's a really nice experience. And this is something that uh, we've done so many times. Uh, and it's nice because you get to know people that you wouldn't normally get to talk to. And we met some people in the choir and we ended up seeing them at some other talks and things like that. We also had a, um, I think it was a prison officer actually at period of time, one of the governors of, I think it was Belmarsh Prison. And he basically talked about the prison uh, service and helped shape some uh, misconceptions. And it's probably the most surreal thing in the world, um, sailing through the Bay of Biscay, going to the Canaries, teaching about how to be arrested. But, you know, um, <laughs> it was a really interesting talk and things like that. So I've, I think the entertainment was brilliant. And then on an evening, you would always have some live music playing in the Yacht and Compass, which is more the pub style venue. You would have... Um, you tended to have two different performances going on at the same time in either Footlights and Starlights. Now, Footlights was the theatre and Starlights was the essentially performer, like performing cabaret bar at the opposite end of the ship. So mm-hmm. it tended to get a bit confusing. You could always see if you were having a drink um, between shows. You could see people running one way, realising <laughs> they've gone wrong and then going the other way. So that was always amusing. But yes, you had the, as well as, your visiting artists, so you'd have vocalists, we had a magician slash illusionist, we even had um, someone from Britain's Got Talent, um, I wouldn't call it a puppeteer, I can never remember the correct term for them, um, but they did some fantastic different shows as well, it wasn't anything that I'd never really seen before, and then we have the theater, the headliners theatre company, now they are the residents, basically performing group and they do a whole range of songs um, and essentially musicals and different things like that so we had at top of the billboards which was famous British artists who had made it big in America and they did a I think it was like a crazy medley of, and essentially they somehow managed to fit about 20 to 50 songs in a 40 minute performing period and it just seamlessly transitioned oh, wow. between and that was a bit bonkers um, you also had some uh, a few more musical numbers. So this was looking back at some of the older style of musicals, I and mean, then a different another show was Astonishing. Now, Astonishing is kind of piano's big um, performance piece, really, and it in, and it has a lot of um, magic, magic and illustration, illustration, illusion in it. Okay. Um, so that is something that's been really pushed on the piano ship, and is really impressive. I've seen it. Oh four times, three, four times now. And I've been impressed every single time. But a personal highlight was um, Killer Queen. Now, this basically was when they do um, all the big Queen songs. And I have to admit, I think Freddie Mercury and the rest of the band would be extremely proud of how they did it because they they are some extremely talented people. And I think given what's going on at the moment, it breaks my heart when you hear of these people who can't, do basically their trade and these are hugely yeah. talented people and it, they yep. just need an opportunity to actually be able to enjoy themselves and be able to do what they're good at but i hope they get to see them perform again because they are some brilliant artists oh absolutely and we, we, we will we will get to see them again soon i'm sure yeah, um definitely. one of the one of my favorite shows that i saw on a piano ship was um it was actually a tribute act and it was for adele and she was so good i had to have a double take and see if it was really the real Adele or not. Uh, she didn't particularly look like her, but her voice was, my God, it was incredible. Yeah, was it Becky Porter? 
Oh, I could look it up, but off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, because I think uh, she actually, uh, we, I think we actually saw when she was singing some of her own songs because that clashed. It was a lovely problem to have being figuring out, oh, which do we see? Do we see the musical <laughs> or do we see the talent artist? It, you know, it's always quite a nice thing to have. One thing that we did find quite amusing on Oceana, now this does go against my whole idea of saying that cruising is for everyone, by the very nature of Oceana's very quick rescheduling it meant that most people um had already had already had holidays booked or didn't have enough annual leave to take off work so it meant that um the age range shall we say to put it nicely was significantly increased because obviously realistically it's only the people who were retired um who were able to take that much time off so i think there was a couple of couples and then there was also me and my friend zoe um in our early 20s and I think they actually said in one of the the captain's gala night that the average age on that ship was 73. So we actually <laughs> got to know some of the entertainment um, team quite well. Yep. If they were sat watching the film, if they were sat watching things on their day off, we'd end up getting talk. We'd end up talking to them. And yep. in a couple of cases, we got mistaken as crew because they thought that that's what we were doing. Um, because when, because I know everyone always has the lanyards um, to put their cruise cards. When my mum got me a set of them when I was younger. Um, as like a, I think for when we were on Britannia, it was kind of a celebration that we we're going on the cruise again. But she accidentally got ones which were crew, <laughs> so <laughs> which were actually the crew lanyards. So that would, and so they're completely different. They just say P and O cruises rather than Britannia zero and so forth. So every now and yeah, again, yeah. someone thinks, "Oh, are you a photographer?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I just take the pictures because <laughs> I like, I like, I'm on holiday," which is always quite funny. But I do, I do stress that that isn't all. Oceana was an extreme because obviously not many people who were working were able to take time off that much. But it was, it was something that was quite amusing, and we did end up getting talking to the entertainment artists as well. And another group that I did forget to mention was the uh, resident band, and they were known as Pulse, and um, they performed often in pool, often like by the pool uh, during sea days, or they perform in things such as. Um, they did a ABBA like eighties night, oh, yeah. um, and also a rock night as well. And sometimes these weren't as well attended as some of the other groups, which I found really disappointing because the singer and also uh, some of the guitarists were absolutely incredible. And they did things like Guns and Roses, a load of Queen songs, and they didn't, you know, simplify any of the melodies, or anything like that. And they did it perfectly. So. Um, and it was also quite nice to talk to them when we actually sat down because we bumped into them when we were having a drink once. And it was just nice to be able to like showcase your appreciation. So I don't think people um, really get to say that to them enough because, um, you know, yeah. you can probably, it always I always try and show my appreciation wherever I can because, you know, this is what they do. And so it must be nice to know that they like what you do. Yeah, and as you say, some of the variety that these these artists can perform um, across uh, any given day is is pretty incredible as well. Now let's get to the meaty part of the show. Let's talk about the places that you got to visit. Now for me, this is a little bit of nostalgia as well. I started my travel career back in Tenerife, back in 1997 um, as a holiday rep. So uh, take me back down memory lane. So let's we cruised out of Southampton. You would have had a couple of sea days. Tell us where you went, which ports you visited, and some of the things that you did along the way. Yeah, sure. So we actually had three sea days um, to get to our first port of call, which was Madeira. Now, as you can imagine, it was kind of quite nice to see land after three days. My phone nearly blew yep. up when I had my 4G because I didn't buy Wi-Fi. So that was kind of a, my phone kind of crashed a bit to so kind of catch up 
and got very confused why I was suddenly in the middle of the Atlantic and not uh, in Southampton. <laughs> but our first port of call was Funchal in Madeira. Now, um, the weather, considering this was uh, you know late Mar- uh, late February rather, um, considering it was late February, it was a fantastic weather. And we really might just walked around, to be honest. My um, ethos for most of this cruise was just to kind of see what we bumped into because we didn't want to buy any excursions because me and Zoe, um, we both worked in the NHS and, you know, little did we know how much worse it was going to get, but <laughs> we were very, it had been a very busy few months since we graduated. So we wanted to kind of just relax and enjoy ourselves. So we really walked around um, Madeira. We found some beautiful gardens, which were situated quite up the hill, quite high up the hills. So we looked over at Oceana and we really just had a wander around. And little did we know around this time, the um, carnival was really starting to hit um, the Canary Islands, essentially. So we actually bumped into a, quite a initially small area where they had loads of stores, uh, you know, people selling loads of things. And that was quite nice because you kind of got so, got to see a genuine uh, fun chow rather than a touristy side, which I really liked. Um, and by that time, we went, we did want to go onto the, um, I think it was, I think, chairlift, I think you can call it, or um, yeah. which goes up to a higher point in the island but unfortunately we did run out of time so we had to get back onto the ship now we had a day at sea and unfortunately and during that sea day we actually got an announcement from the captain because whilst we were in Madeira we had heard that there'd been an isolated case of uh, COVID-19 in Costa I think it was the Costa it was in the hotel in the uh, southern part of uh, Tenerife Um, so in I think it was the Costa Adagio region. I might have got that wrong. Yeah. But essentially what they were saying was that they've been speaking to Public Health England and it was okay for Oceana to dock in at Tenerife, but they recommended that you stay away from that part of the island and they're restructuring mm-hmm. all the excursions. So this really meant that we would just stay in the, the port city of, Tener- of Santa Cruz, basically. Now, I have to yep. admit, it wasn't Santa Cruz wasn't probably the prettiest of places in some areas, but... Mm-hmm. Um, in the nicest, but we managed to find a really large central park, um, and that was really nice because we've been walking for quite a while to um, sit down and relax, and all loads of fountains, and we re- were really enjoying it, and the weather was gorgeous. However, we kept hearing some, it sounded like what we thought was drums or something, so we wanted to see what was going on, and like I mentioned earlier, because this was just before Lent was starting, they were all doing a um, massive carnival in Tenerife. So as we were starting to walk back towards the ship, we were kind of um, engulfed by a variety of uh, carnival acts going past. And that was absolutely incredible because it, I mean, don't get me wrong, it wasn't the size of things like in Brazil, but there were all these amazing dancers in this huge costumes and it was loud and it was completely bonkers but we had such a good time and actually there was a massive festival going on right near the port um and there was all you know stalls and everything like that and given what was going to happen shortly after it's a kind of a memory that i'm going to hold very dear because everyone was so happy then and um we there wasn't a case of any increased sanitation because the potential uh, isolated case but obviously we didn't really know anything about covid19 at that point we just kind of brushed it off um and so we did stay away from that part of the island but to be honest i'm really glad that we did because we probably wouldn't have encountered the carnival and the music was so loud you could still hear it from the ship um, (laughs) and it was like a massive party and festival going on so that was really nice that's the good thing about spain there's always a good fiesta taking place somewhere in some town or village 
And on to your, your next port? Yes, so at Gran Canaria. So I think, again, at Gran Canaria, we were visit. I think we also had um, one of Ada's ships with us, Ada Stella, and uh-huh. as well as potentially Mine Schiff, I believe, um, and okay. one of the Mine Schiff uh, ships. And we decided to, we wanted a bit of a beach day because I feel like everyone always needs one of those because we'd had a few days where we'd been a bit busy. Um, so we wanted to uh, relax. So we went on to, uh, it wasn't volcanic, the beach, but there was definitely some elements of it where the sand was uh, quite black. And we probably walked a good couple of miles along this um, track of uh, beach. But the one thing that we did learn was because obviously the Canaries are quite windy, um, mm-hmm. we didn't really realize how warm it was or quite how hot it was. Now, I had managed to put sun cream on, but my friend Zoe in a very similar repeat to what she did on the previous cruise, was going to put some on when she felt like it. And unfortunately, she never felt like it. So she ended up a bit like a lobster. Um, and to be fair, I... I there's always one. Off. Yeah, there's always one. And to be fair, I didn't come off unscathed either. Um, but we had <clears> such a good time. And it was just nice to kind of walk along the sea um, and just really kind of relax and just enjoy ourselves. Now, um, our next port, of course, was Arisafe, um in Lanzarote. Now... We went to the main castle in Lanzarote, uh, in Arisafe, but by that time, like I mentioned, we had a little bit of sunstroke, I think, from the day before, so we definitely took it easy, and I um, walked back to the ship after collecting a good amount of um, a good amount of volcanic rocks, because I think I was harking back to my younger days when I was absolutely obsessed with volcanoes. So when we visited the Canary Islands, I was a very happy person, um, <laughs> and once we'd done that, we had our final sea day before we hit Cadiz now the sea day was really nice um because realistically it was probably going to be our last uh, sunny day before we hit mainland Spain so our next port of court was Cadiz and Cadiz is somewhere that I'd visited several times before but I really enjoy going to the cathedral I don't know if you've ever been no actually I've never been to Cadiz but it's definitely on my list mm, I'd recommend because it's uh, the the cathedral's only six euros, I believe, um, and you can go in and it has a audio tour and at various points around the um, around the cathedral. And now I'm not a, a religious individual, but you can't help but be moved by the skill it must have taken to build these structures and the like. It's such an intricate design of things, which I really really liked. Um, and once we did that, we did yet more walking and we basically followed the seafront along the side of uh, Cadiz to go to a fort, which essentially juts out right out to sea, um, probably and would have been a very strategic fortification at its time. Unfortunately, because it was out of season, it was closed, but it was a nice long walkway, which we walked. And then we found our way back, visited another fortification, which was open, took loads of pictures and things like that, um, and also read, read up on some of the history. And then we decided to walk uh, back. The only issue being that we wanted to go through the city because we thought we'd be sensible and try and make the most direct route. The issue is it's, uh, the, the streets of Cadiz are very tight and quite tall. So it means that you don't really have a point of reference. So eventually <laughs> we just tried to we tried to aim towards the port and hope for the best. And eventually we'd see a ship. <laughs> that was our hope. And about a good half an hour later, half an hour to an hour probably even, we walked out and you could just see in the distance the Rising Sun logo of the pier, of the funnel. And I was like, yep, we're there, finally. Um, <laughs> so we'd done a lot of walking. Um, so we wanted to make, uh, have a bit of a rest, which we did. 
and um, we had a, a nice sail away out of South Southampton, out of Cadiz. Now, our final port of call was Lisbon. Now, this is a port that I was really excited to visit um, because I've heard lots of good things about the sail into Lisbon as well as the sail mm -hmm. out because you get to go under the 25th of April bridge. Yep. And that is something that um, I've always wanted to do. I do recall us doing it in uh, 2006 or so, but obviously that was a bit of a while ago. So I misjudged my timings because I knew that we were arriving into the port at 8.30. I thought we'd be going under the bridge at about seven. It turns out that was about an hour later. So my Zoe wasn't best pleased that I woke her up that early. <laughs> and I have to admit it was cold. Um, I because I was used to Cadiz, which we still had that really nice weather, but going further up the um, coast, the weather had definitely dropped, and this was 7 o'clock in the morning in early March. So wow. I don't know why okay. I chose to wear shorts, but there we go. And <laughs> it was an experience, but um, eventually we slowly made our way through the River Targus, and you could see the um, 25th of April bridge looming above us. And I have to admit, that was an incredible experience. Um going under the bridge because I'm not sure if you've done it yourself, but it has yeah, yeah, a, have, yeah. it's got that huge roaring noise um, as you go under. It's quite unique um, yeah. thing to actually see. And I managed, one thing that I really loved about the design of the Sun Class ships was that at least on, on Oceana, um, the way the bridge uh, juts out, there is a bit of deck above it where you can um, basically look down oh, yeah, the entire yeah. side of the ship. Yeah. So that is something which we really, that's what I basically sat there and watched as the ship sailed under the bridge, which was really nice. And it was incredibly windy. So we had a few tugs just kind of there in case we needed any help. And then we docked. Um, and then I went into the buffet to finally defrost um, because I was very <laughs> cold at this point. But I'd, I'd been up for an hour. I wanted to make sure that I saw the whole sailing. So I took lots and lots of pictures and videos and I absolutely loved it. Now, we were meant to have a full day in Lisbon. However, we had a slightly ominous message from the captain who said that they've rescheduled the departure time for uh, Oceana because of a storm that was coming off the Atlantic. Now, um, uh, and they basically said that um, we need to get out of the port then because we might not get we might not be able to get out of the port, <laughs> which gave us a bit of a sense of trepidation to put it mildly. Um, but so we want so we had to kind of get off the ship in good time so we were able to have a relatively full day in Lisbon. Now the weather wasn't as good as the rest of the ports, uh, definitely a bit cloudier and windy. But I really enjoyed our time in Lisbon. Uh, the streets are very uh, tight and winding it seems and it's it was because it was out of season and this can be said for all the ports there wasn't nearly as many tourists as you would get in high summer so you're of able course. to kind of enjoy and relax things at your own leisure uh, the i can't remember the name of it but the large plaza and archway um as you kind of walk into lisbon was especially impressive and you obviously you've got all yep. the trams going by and it was just it was a really nice city full of character but one but unfortunately, after a lot of walking, we had to cut our um, journey short a bit because uh, Zoe, who liked, who took it upon herself to uh, try and photobomb some of my videos that I was taking from my blogs, unfortunately ended up going over on her ankle, which I have to admit was a little bit of karma, but um, <laughs> wasn't ideal either way. So um, I noticed she was limping a bit, and so um, she kind of had to concede that she did mess up, and so she needed to go... Uh, back to the ship because obviously if the weather was going to be rough on the way back I didn't really want her to be not feeling too good 
So <laughs> we uh, departed Lisbon at 3 p.m. And I've never, and the captain definitely seemed to put his foot down. We got an announcement through the tannoy and we were doing kind of a, not a great British sail away because that had been changed on Oceana, but it was kind of a farewell, final port departure kind of thing. So you had mm-hmm. all the cheesy music, you had a bit of Queen, you had a bit of, you know, Rod Stewart's We Are Sailing and all that lot. Uh, which was actually quite emotional, to be fair, because you kind of realised that the next time you were going back on land was uh, going to be the joys of sunny England. And <laughs> um, the captain kind of warned us that um, we're basically going to be getting out. as We're going to be, I think he said, going as quickly as possible now. So then when we hit the storm, we can slow down. You'll pro- And then basically detailed how we're probably going to have between four and a half to five meet, five and a half metre waves as we... Uh, basically leave the port and that might increase and we're going to basically be in for a bumpy ride and that they were securing the ship which as someone who loves rough weather I was really excited but Zoe definitely wasn't (laughs) so uh, the first sea day was basically um, an experience because like I mentioned the captain said we're going to have about five and a half meter waves or so and we did Um, I want to stress to everyone um, that the reason I was totally expecting something like this. We were sailing in the Bay of Biscay, half in the middle of essentially late winter, early spring. So we knew that there were probably going to be storms. Um, and there was at no point was I feeling unsafe or um, I felt like the yeah. ship was, you know, in danger or anything like that. You know, these ships are built to just withstand a lot worse. Um, but it definitely made for a bumpy ride. They meant, um, I think the entertainment manager uh, said that regrettably the line dancing uh, was going to be cancelled, which made everyone <laughs> laugh because it definitely wouldn't have been lined. Um, but the ship was definitely uh, feeling it. And unfortunately, um, the cheap cabin that we got kind of highlighted why it wasn't so expensive as some of the other inside cabins because we were right at the front. <laughs> so if we wave that the ship uh, encountered and when I think the captain described it as a slamming motion um, because basically when mm-hmm. the bow lifted out the water and then went down again, it caused the ship to shudder. So um, yeah. some people weren't a fan of that, especially Zoe, but I was completely fine. And they rejigged the entertainment options on that day. So we had um, actually the entertainment manager was doing a big talk, talking about the solar system because he was a member of the Royal Astrological Society as you do oh, wow. <laughs> so that was again a surreal experience bouncing through the bay of biscay learning about the sun um so i kind of quite <laughs> like that and unfortunately zoe was kind of very much out for the count because we were uh, throughout all the sea days we'd been preparing for the choir and we managed to get to the choir rehearsal performed it but because of where the sh- where the venue was it was right at the back of the ship and so with lots of windows, so I think she was fine and then she wasn't because I think it was just a bit too much. <laughs> so she had to stay in oh, bed until the evening, which was our formal night. Now, it was the final black and white night. So we kind of half walked, half staggered up um, to <laughs> dinner and the, din- the dining room was definitely a bit empty that night. But we we held in there and we were fine. Um, and luckily, the final sea day was actually... Um, completely fine actually um the, the seas kind of parted it seemed like the, at the end of some film when it's kind of you know you see a sun shining and it's like oh we can walk outside again um but and it was definitely a talking point for everyone to think you know how was your day like how did you cope that I was completely fine and we all our table companions were more or less intact um but because yeah. of the speed at which we'd kind of been powering through to escape the uh, storm 
um, we'd actually, we, we were basically in the English Channel by early afternoon. So the captain let us know that by about 10 o'clock, we would actually be docked in Southampton so they can safely dock because of the storm was going to hit Southampton a few d- a day or so later. So they wanted to, <laughs> excuse me, they wanted to get it all out the way. And one thing that's the good thing about the Sun class ship. They um, they're such a powerful um, ship. They, they they've got quite some speed in them. Yeah, exactly. Like the like Oceana was motoring it, I think. And like I said, I think it was just trying to get it all done um, as much as possible. Like they were trying to just power through as quickly as possible, like you said. And it was a very surreal experience um, arriving into Southampton the day before. So it was weird seeing the whole manoeuvring <laughs> procedure because normally you're asleep at that time. But one thing that I yeah. absolutely loved though was the final um, was actually the final choir performance that we had, and this was, you know, because we we got to know each other really quite well, um, and because of that, it was quite emotional when we said goodbye to everyone because it was a really nice performance, and we definitely had a laugh throughout it. So again, that's something I'd really recommend. And then before we knew it. We were off the ship. Um, we opted for self-disembarkation in the uh, morning. So we were off the ship by about 7.30. And can, we kind yeah. of stayed up a little bit too late with our table companions. And we had a final drink, probably about 1.30. We went to bed. Um, <laughs> so we were all very tired. But I think, I don't know about you, but I when I'm when it's disembarkation day, I just want to get off because there's no point kind of hanging around. Um, I just kind of want yeah, to be home. Yeah, boring you out. Yeah, exactly. It's like you just want to. I think, especially because our journey's so long, uh, it was going to take me four hours, four or five hours to get home. So I just wanted to kind of power through and get it over and done with, if that makes sense. <laughs> now, if you had to choose one place out of that whole uh, itinerary that uh, was a standout, uh, would there be one? Oh yeah, definitely uh, Lisbon. I absolutely, I really enjoyed Lisbon. I think I'd like to spend a lot more time in it, but with uh, the with Oceana cutting her journey short with her time in the port short as well as um her as well as Zoe's unfortunate incident with her ankle it meant that we weren't able to do as much but I'd definitely like to do that and I really would like to see a bit more of Tenerife as well maybe go up to places like Mount TD and things like that but it, in all in general it was a really like it was a really nice itinerary and I in, in the we had such good weather, and I have to admit, it's probably one of my favourite cruises to date, especially what happened so shortly afterwards. Yeah, of course, of course. Now, I know the ship's a, a very fond uh, ship of yours, but is there one particular area of the of that ship that is your standout go-to uh, place on board? Uh, I'd say there's probably two, actually, if that's all right. Um, in terms okay, of yeah. exterior, the promenade was fantastic. Um, but also a very unique position was kind of in front of the buffet. You got this huge, um, which I presume was where the bridge was, a deck below. Um, you get this huge observation deck so you can look over the bow. And on a calm sea day, there was nothing better than just like watching the ship power through the waves. And I found that so relaxing. I probably spent several hours doing that. And it's also a brilliant spot when you were sailing into port. And in terms of interiors, it's got to be her atrium. Um, I think she probably had the biggest and best atrium in the fleet. Um, it was definitely a kind of a wild factor moment when you walked when you walked in there for the first time because yeah, it's yeah. quite Art Deco. I'd probably design uh, same with the Tiffany glass as well that they have throughout it. It's yep. just a stunning uh, place and was brilliant for people watching as well, which I really enjoyed. 
Yeah, no, those atriums are good on the uh, on the sun class of ships. Yeah. Now we've talked a lot about the different entertainments and things on board. Uh, some people often say to me that a, a cruise director elevates uh, your cruise to the next level. Other people don't really have much interaction with them. Did you meet and hear of the cruise director on board? Did they make a big difference to your, your cruise experience? That's a good question, actually, because I believe um, well, the thing is, cruise director. We didn't, as far as I'm aware, I don't think we had a cruise director, but we had an entertainment like officer kind of thing. Like I think that was our P&O's variant of them. I might have missed. Uh, uh, cons- yeah, I think Cunard have done the same. I think they've changed the title slightly. Yes. Yeah. So we, uh, if that was the case, then Leon was our entertainment manager, and I do have to admit he was very good. And like I said before, because I think we were so noticeable because we were one of the only young people <laughs> on there that weren't crew. Um, we uh, always spoke to him and uh, we we always had a bit of a laugh and stuff like that, which was really nice. He did lots of, like I mentioned, he did the uh, solar system talk, which was incredible. And actually one of the things that he, I think, said at one point is that, oh, where's the other half of the dynamic duo? Because obviously we were always together, <laughs> uh, which was quite nice. Yep. And he did all the announcements. Um, he always had some cheesy joke or something. So, yeah, um, I think... It wouldn't have, in the nicest way, it wouldn't have completely ruined my cruise if I hadn't, uh, if you hadn't been there. But he definitely improved it, and he was such a kind-hearted, and you could tell, kind-hearted individual, and you could tell that he absolutely loved it. Brilliant. Now, um, surprisingly, some of the cruise line executives do listen to this podcast. So if you had a message that you wanted to get back to them about uh, the ship that is no longer, but also about the, the fleet and what you do love about P&O, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, just a quick message to them. Oh, that's interesting. But yeah, I just say, I think it's a massive shame that P&O, Oceana had to leave. But given what's going on at the moment, I think it's completely reasonable. Uh, you have to find more economical ships and all that lot. But I think it's just more to important to mention that Younger people like myself and uh, my friend, we do like the you know the formal nature of uh, P and O because yes, you don't have as many um, casual nights. You have a lot more formal stuff. You have you know walks along the promenade. Not everyone wants or needs the climbing walls and the ice skating rinks and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, that'd be amazing. But my idea of the perfect cruise is a good is a good relaxing cruise where you can have. Your formal nights, you get to dress up because you you don't get to do that in today's world. And yeah, yeah, I think I know there's a lot of probably loyalists um, of PNO who probably I believe with Iona they've kind of reduced the formal nights to one um, one a week um, because they're trying to attract that you know younger audience and things like that, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. But there are people who are young, if that's a word, um, who do like the traditional type of cruising because we don't get to do that like yeah i can i could you know get in a you know at some smart jeans and a, and a shirt and go to my local restaurant you can do that anywhere but you don't really get to dress up in a tuxedo and go for a gala meal and all that yeah. lot. so i think it's kind of yes you want maybe want to modernize but there are still people who love that kind of area and i think they do a fantastic job and i can't wait to cruise with them again when things are able to completely understand and that kind of leads me into uh, the the last question if covid wasn't happening right now and you could go anywhere in the world on any ship where would it be and on what and why um i think it would probably be a transatlantic on cunard's queen mary 2 that is a that's something that i've been yearning to do for many many years now and i think kind of leading on from what i said uh, before with the whole idea of traditional cruising i think P- uh, cunard is kind of like the epitome of that kind of style of cruising 
um, or voyages, I guess you could probably more appropriately call a transatlantic. But um, as someone who really likes the design of ships, the Queen Mary 2, you know, is the only true ocean liner and things like that. And I'd absolutely adore yep. that. Um, and that is definitely something that I'd want to do. But um, I think it would just be any cruise, because realistically, I kind of look back on Oceana even more so now with a kind of fondness, because realistically, um, the cruise after uh, the one that we when we disembarked, the uh, next cruise was meant to be a two week Mediterranean cruise that got stuck in Gibraltar halfway through. And then Aurora got turned away from Norway. Um, Britannia and Azura had to uh, move back from the Caribbean and poor Arcadia got stuck in South Africa for a period of time and they had to kind of motor home with just technical stops and yep. and Queen Mary 2 I think had the same issue and I think yep. I, I think we misunderstand I admit that maybe cruising I don't know the whole couldn't the whole world basically misunderestimated the severity of this pandemic I distinctly recall almost laughing it off and saying it's going to just be the flu I, when they were talking about the isolated case in Tenerife, and that's something I deeply regret. Yeah, and um, we had no idea when we got off Oceana that I think what two, three weeks, two, three weeks later, the UK was going to lockdown. And in some ways, I'm so thankful for Oceana because that two weeks was when everyone else was kind of getting very, very scared um, because it, yeah. all of a sudden it wasn't in a far distant country. It was in France. It was in Italy. It was in England. So I came off Oceana yeah. and came back to work and people were kind of asking me, you were on a cruise? And I was like, yes, it was it was brilliant. Thanks for asking. And people, I admit, I it completely blindsided me because then all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is this is happening. But I got to have two weeks of pure, like mem- making memories, having a laugh, enjoying times with a friend who I haven't seen since um, due to the pandemic. And it's something that I think I'll hold very dear. And I do want to just think that cruising is going to return, and it already is, but in a wider way, it will return with a vengeance. And I think people will realise that cruising is probably one of the safest, most hygienic and most enjoyable uh, things that I will do. And I cannot wait to go on a cruise again in the near future. I couldn't agree more. And um, as you touched on, you do work in the the NHS, which is the health service back in the UK. So to you and your thousands of colleagues, thank you for everything that you've done. And also your colleagues that are doing the same thing here in Australia as well. But it's incredibly tough. Um, We really appreciate everything that you do. And I'm with you. I can't wait to get on the next cruise either. Thank you very much. That means a lot. But yeah, I think um, the cruise industry has definitely been, I think slammed is probably too even too minor a word by it. And I can't think of any other industry which has been told that they can't do anything. I think, you know, airlines are still flying, hotels are still taking bookings. And I hope that people kind of see yeah. sense and actually give the cruise industry a chance. I think it's probably a right word because they've got yeah. the systems in place. They already have the systems. Yes, you had the, the case of Diamond Princess, I believe you had. Was it Ruby Princess in Australia? That was the one. Yeah, but then that was yeah, due yeah. to errors not on the cruise line side, I believe. I don't want to get too political. Because yeah. Obviously, you know, um, this is a podcast where people wanted to enjoy themselves with. But <laughs> I think, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people will return to. And yes, like you, and like you said at the start of this, the, cru- the travel industry as a whole, yes, it's taken a hit, but it's resilient. You guys have had to deal with a lot more beforehand um and i appreciate your comment with the nhs because we're doing our best but the thing is everyone is uh, we're all 
doing our bit and that's all we can do at the moment isn't it but i cannot cannot wait it is i will be running up a gangway <laughs> as soon as I, i'm able <laughs> to uh, pushing people aside if needs be <laughs> <laughs> sounds good matthew always a pleasure but before you go you have got um your socials and your blog and things by all means give them a little plug and i will put the links to all of this in the show notes as well oh you're too kind but yes yeah, so it's uh cruising matthew and that is i'm pretty sure you can find it easily on instagram twitter facebook uh and also youtube i've also got uh, my twitter handle i think is matthew cruisers um so do check it out and it'll be lovely and do say hi uh if you've heard it from the podcast and to be fair barry i think you might have inspired me to maybe do a bit more um podcasting if that's a word and maybe see how that yeah. gets on but it's been a pleasure to uh actually been invited as well and also thank you for chris frame uh and chris cunard for um actually inviting me to uh, join this because it's a very much it's very humbling to be asked to do something like that and i very much enjoyed it Oh, pleasure. Oh, pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks again, Matthew. We will speak to you next time you're on a ship, I'm sure. All the best, mate. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Until next time, bon voyage. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.